Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Ooh, I'm excited about this one because this one we recorded live at YouTube Space with Dan Wilson who just recently released his album Recovered, a collection of his reinterpretations of songs that he wrote for and with other artists, has written songs like Closing Time for his band Semisonic and Someone Like You for Adele, not to mention Grammy Song of the Year, Not Ready to Make Nice for Dixie Chicks. So he spans lots of genres and he kills them all. So without further ado, here is And The Writer Is featuring Dan Wilson. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. This week's venerable writer and artist is verifiably a genius. He's written multiple evergreens in multiple genres. He led a rock band when alternative music crossed over to pop. He penned arguably the most controversial country song in the past decade. And he co-wrote certainly one of the greatest ballads of all time. From the Twin Cities, this gentleman puts his family first. And the writer is, still the industry's best calligrapher, Dan Wilson. Thank you for mentioning the calligraphy. Uh, so, um, full disclosure, we've, in our finale last year, we got to ask you some questions on a panel for uh, the Songwriter Hall of Fame at the Grammy Museum. So, um, I used the calligrapher line then, and it was funny, so I used it again nice. tonight. Well done. So, that's why I said still. That's sort of the, the songwriter thing, is the edit thing. Like that little nuance where you try to go and you find the word like, well, still the industry's best. Just wanted to clarify that that meant no one else has come in the music industry and like outdid your calligraphy. It's a dog-eat-dog world of calligraphers <laughs> and music. I kind of see this whole like this this behind-the-scenes calligraphy going on. So anyway, uh, this is pretty cool. So I don't know if you remember how we met. Do you? I think it was uh, now. Everyone has their own version. Ho- hopefully, yours is more. Uh, drunken and excited oh, than mine. Yeah, I think go. I tweeted you out of the blue because I yeah. thought you were awesome. Yeah, how does that happen? 
Like, all right, so I had this song called Unkiss Me for Maroon 5. And um, when one of, like, you were playing Closing Time 10 minutes ago, and I was kind of getting emotional because for me, hearing that song reminds me of the time before I was a songwriter. Mm. You know, it reminds me of when I was like just starting to write songs at home in a band in Deerfield, Illinois. And like that was the kind of song that I would hear and everyone knew it. It was just so big and it reminded me it was I was it was such a nostalgic moment. And so to have you reach out to somebody meant a lot. So thank you. Uh, You're welcome. I just love that song, Unkiss Me, so much. And I remember driving around listening to that Maroon 5 record. And every time it would get... There's a lot of great songs on that album, but every time it would get to Unkiss Me, I would just be so moved and excited. And I suddenly realized that we have this uh, sort of instant cold call machine now in Twitter, and I could just like tell you you're great and say, let's hang out, which we did. Which we did, and now we're here. Yeah. This is awesome. Um, so, uh, so you're from Minnesota. Let's start from the beginning. Why is uh, Bob Dylan, Prince, and Dan Wilson coming from Minneapolis? <laughs> like, where is what is it about Minneapolis that makes this kind of artist? Well, I I am a musician probably very much because of Dylan and Prince. I mean, indirectly as a fan and as a kid. Dylan, you know, grew up in a small town in northern Minnesota and came down to the cities and hung around the U of M for a short time and escaped. Uh, Prince, Prince became famous as a teenager and stayed in Minneapolis. And that was just when I was kind of, like the way you're talking about when your awareness was kind of, you know, emerging. Uh, when you're a kid, you just think a song is this thing that floats down from the sky. But as you get older, you start to get a glimmering that people make songs and people make music. And that, of course, that's when I started thinking I could I could do it too. And at that time, Prince was the the prime uh, example of how to do music. And he lived in Minneapolis, and he had stayed in Minneapolis, and all his peeps were from Minneapolis and all the great musicians that he surrounded himself with had moved to Minneapolis or were from there, from his high school, you know. And I just, it gave me this example that I could stay in Minneapolis and be a musician. So going in before that, I mean, when do you start playing music? My parents commanded me to take piano lessons in second grade. Uh, They told me that I would thank them later because there would be parties when I grew up (laughs) and there would be a piano in the house and I would become the one who would sit down at the party at the piano and sing the pop hits of the day and it would it would be a wonderful experience for me and it would make me more popular. I think it was already apparent I was really a very mathematical child and so they wanted every in that I could get. Yeah. And uh Turns, I don't think I've ever played the piano at a party and sung a song, actually. But because I was the oldest, they made me study piano for until I was in like tenth grade. Were you doing classical, or were you actually playing the pop songs of the time? No, I was. Uh, see, that's the the disconnect. I was doing classical, and my first teacher was a really theoretical woman, 
who was all into the <laughs> a theoretical woman. Like, she was real. No, she was real. Fake. No, she was. <laughs> she she was she was embodied, but <laughs> but she had uh, she was really into the circle of fifths. How the scales yeah. work against each other. What it, you know what what it all kind of how it all works. So I got this very um, very theoretical training early on, and then in ninth grade I. I studied jazz piano with a guy named Herb Wigley. And jazz is like, secretly, is songwriter training. Yeah. It's totally songwriter training. Yeah, the bridge of, of closing time is out of control. <laughs> I mean, how does that actually get... I mean, that must have been a moment when people started liking that song. You're like, how does this work? Yeah. I mean, and you can do it. How do you get away with that? Um, did your, do you have brothers and sisters? I have a, I have a brother and a sister. Were they also musicians? They, my, my parents ran out of steam commanding everybody to <laughs> practice the piano. So. Right. But my brother is an amazing songwriter, and I, I learned much of what I know about writing from my brother Matt. Did you ever co-write with him? Tons, because we were in a band. Well, we were in various bands in high school or junior high when being in a band means you have a bunch of meetings. <laughs> and talk about and what talk band about you're going to be do like. Someday. Yeah, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> what was your first band? Then <laughs> <laughs> we had a real band. Um, we had a, a a band called the Love Monsters. That, that's, I guess, our the, the first band where we took the reins and really had a lot of uh, vision for it. And he wrote most of the songs, and I helped. Did he sing? And he sang. And I played. He was a drummer, but I was made to play the drums in that band. Oh, so you play drums too? Yeah. Yeah. I actually know that. I just felt like throwing nice, it out there. Nicely done. I know this because we've written together a lot mm-hmm. now. Um, so what brings you from, so you're in this band in, in high school. When do you start writing for yourself? Do you remember like your first song where you were actually talking about something that mattered to you? Was your brother bringing that out of you? No, Matt, Matt kind of figured it out a, lot, a long time before I figured it out. And I watched him and like tried to, kind of channel what he was trying to do so I could help him write the last verse or a bridge or something like that. Or right. sometimes he would give me a pile of lyrics and I would write the melody. This was for our band, Trip Shakespeare. So, oh, so okay, there we go. Yeah. So, so you went from Love Monsters yeah. straight into Trip Shakespeare? There was a couple. I went to, I moved to, uh, I went to Harvard and uh, studied art, thought I was going to be a painter. Uh, went out to San Francisco um, to live a bohemian life for a couple of years. And then my brother Matt asked me to come back to Minneapolis, join his band, and learn all the guitar parts on the left channel of the stereo mix of an <laughs> album he had just made. That's really funny. Yeah. Um, wait, so in, uh, in Harvard and in... That was where like, we had the Love Monsters. That was where it really kind of came. That's oh, where, really? Yeah, that's wait, was he, so he was in he Boston He went to Harvard too, yeah. Oh, okay. I, how, what's the age difference? Two years. It's convenient. Um, so, <laughs> if your goal is to be in a band in college with your, with your brother, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's really cool. Especially, you know, I mean, not to to stereotype Harvard, but I imagine being in a band in Harvard is probably a really cool thing to do. Because I imagine most that's you know, arts, isn't it cool everywhere? Yeah, at maybe. all times. Yeah, know. but there are places you know in LA. There are all these. There are, people are born artists, and their parents are artists, and everyone's an artist. And so, being in a band is like that's cool. My, I've got like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of going to, you know, friends, bands, concerts versus I think at Harvard, you're in a band and you're probably one of the only bands amongst your friends. 
I, I can speak for uh, Galaxy 500 came out of there. Okay. They're a great band. Yeah, so, so there's two. You know, there's two. So, um, so you go to, uh, in San Francisco, there's a great music scene. Were you, but I you was just, just crying. Out? You're just crying? Yeah, we just, I just moved out there and <laughs> cried for like two years. <laughs> Why were you so sad? Uh, anxiety of being 24 and not knowing, you know, why isn't the universe showering me with riches and purpose? And, ah, uh, okay. you know, um, how am I going to make my dreams come true? And what, But what did you I know doing? what your dreams were? Because you went for painting, I basically, you know? I basically always knew that I was going to be a musician. I, you just I, didn't want to admit it? There were times when I didn't want to admit it. I, it's, it's interesting, my, my um, family, uh, I think they didn't think it was a super wise decision to be a musician, but they were really, really supportive of it. My parents were really supportive of it. What did they do for a living? My dad uh, was a doctor, and my mother was a nurse. And yet they kept making you guys do music because they knew that talking about being a doctor or a nurse or medicine at a party sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Because what happens to, if you're a doctor, they say, I've got this pain. Everybody talks to you about their pains. Yeah. 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 It's odd, though, because you were saying how in your sessions you end up becoming a therapist. As a co-writer where artists come in, oh my God. you basically try to coax out their pain. Oh my God. So you write about it. It's totally true. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Wilson. Yeah. I'm going to ruin apple your night. doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I was talking to my dad the other day. I know this is your story, but um, he was... Uh, he he knew he wrote ten songs in his life. Like any landmark was a song. So my my birth and he was like, "Be your own boss, little man. Write your own song, little man." Was his thing. And then through my twenties, when he was giving me shit about my career choice, it was like um, I had this epiphany when I went for his sixtieth birthday. I brought some equipment back to record him. And I was paying attention to this song, and I pressed stop, and I was like, "This is your fault." You know, like you were the one who chose this profession for me. Mm. Had you written a song that was like, be your own boss, little man, go be a doctor, little man, maybe that'd be something different. But he like, it's like parents instill maybe what their real dream is sometimes into their kids. Well, I will say we, um, one of our little, uh, my my family's little touchstones was this um, seven inch record that my dad's, high school doo-wop group had made. Wow. It was just a piano and them singing four-part harmonies. And I think they had had the experience, my dad had actually had that experience of his harmony group at parties with their piano player, you know, like entertaining and, and having people dance and stuff like that. But my family would get together and listen to this seven-inch record all together and... and uh, it was almost like a, an icon of our family, so it probably influenced my brother and I a lot. Do you still have it? My parents have it. Actually, no, I have a copy of it too. There were a couple and I had one. Do you remember those songs? Oh, note for note. I heard them a hundred times, probably more. It's really interesting. Yeah. Were they good? Well, the, 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 uh, the songs were not originals. They were the hits of the day. Mm-hmm. It was Shaboom. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Blue Moon. Done in doo wop style, yeah. and um, what was the other one? Uh, the day isn't long enough, which is a killer, killer song. 
it's interesting the pop, how much pop hasn't changed when you have, you know, you know, I know this is old, but if you do an umbrella, Ella, Ella, A, 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 that that's not a whole lot different than shaboom, shaboom, like that having those moments of finding things that are singable, that yeah. are not words, yeah. is super valuable. And yeah. I imagine that having been, been exposed to sort of the great songs of that era is for sure that's influenced you. But I, it's funny because I would gravitate to, even though I loved uh, like Umbrella and Shaboom and also, um, oh, you know, there's so many like uh, nursery rhymes with nonsense lyrics, but sure. I rarely am able to get the nonsense lyrics into my songs. I don't know why. It's hard. It's, it's somehow Maybe it's a harder, challenge yeah. that awaits me. Um, yeah, we'll get there. So um, when you come back to Minneapolis um, to start Trips Shakespeare, yep. that changes everything, right? Yeah. Because suddenly people are noticing your band. Yeah. Out of Minneapolis. How does, how does that happen? Well, I mean, like I said, it's, you have to remember at that time, there was a lot going on in Minneapolis. Uh, uh, Husker Du was there at the time. The replacements were there at the time. Um, uh, you know, the, all of Prince's offshoots were there at the time. Uh, the beginnings of Soul Asylum, you know, just lots oh, of, wow. there was a whole scene and Twin Town, uh, Twin Tone Records was there, like, uh, kind of supporting that scene. And it, it was very um, conceivable to have a band in Minneapolis at that time and, and, and do everything you needed to do to, to, you know, to be a musician. When you started Semisonic, was it difficult to do a band without your brother? <clears throat> yeah, it was. Matt and I uh, collaborated on a lot of songs, but he did a lot of the songs in Trip Shakespeare on his own, just 100%. And um, there were certain things that I would do that just didn't fit that band. I, my, you know, uh, Matt would tease me that I listened to the radio too much and my songs sounded too much like the radio. And so I, I would come in with something and, and it wouldn't fit the Trip Shakespeare quirky ethic in a way. And uh, when Trip Shakespeare, we all decided to take a break and just not do it for a while and see what that was like. And I immediately started trying to put together something where I could write things that sounded more like the radio and see what that felt like. That worked out. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So you, you go and you write your first EP of sorts. Mm -hmm. now, it's not really called an EP at the time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Okay. So you write this EP and um, your publisher now still, uh, who is just introducing you on the stage, he hears it and you get a publishing deal. Is that the right order of things? It's approximately that. Like, there, you know, the, there was the EP and probably a big pile of songs. Right, of course. Yeah. You end up releasing music in 94, 95, 96. These are the, in a lot of ways, the defining years of what you'd call like alternative music. I mean, you yeah. had 91, 92, you kind of get Nirvana, you get Pearl Jam, you get, and it starts to pick up. Mm -hmm. And 94, you start getting Radiohead and Weezer, and you start, and you become part of the zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, 
was there like a race to trying to get songs out at that time? I mean, when did you start feeling like you were becoming part of this community of bands? Well, I think that was a conscious um, decision. A friend of mine had told me, a, a, a really good artist told me, um, s- stop being such a loner. Stop being off on your own island. Um, an artist without a movement is soon forgotten. Oh, wow. And it really st- struck me. And I kind of, th- I think that time in music was, was uh, I-, I was really inspired by what was happening of a certain kind of loud guitar, basically bands that would travel in vans, which we had and we were. And, you know, it was like, somehow it felt like being nearly exactly what I liked was a possibility, you know, like in music. So when you do Closing Time, which is now on your third release of sorts, mm-hmm. or I guess it's part of your... Yeah, it's like the third. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you write this song. Did you know when you were done with it that this one was special? Once again, no. I didn't know that it was special. Who told you it was special? Somebody everybody. says. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. I know the meaning behind it. I know you discussed it before, but I think this one's important because I think there's at least the stories around it are really that it or the folklore is that it's really about you becoming a dad. Partly it is. So putting that out there and knowing that the you know the press and everything that's going to happen with I guess you don't you're just writing the song at the time so you don't think about press or any of that. I really wasn't you're thinking just about the future it. very much. It's crazy. But as a musician who's about to be a dad how are you dealing with the emotional? Like, it's hard enough. I, I've always figured that if I have a child, they'll starve to death until recently, you know? So, I now mean, your that, children have a better shot. Now they have a better shot at not starving to death. But, like, mm-hmm. when you're at that age, you know, you're not like bringing in a ton of cash and doing no. all that, and you're going on the road. Did you think closing time really meant, like, Closing the door on the band or closing the door on the career did it have anything to do with that? No, it was it was. Um, I was probably in a state of sheer terror about being becoming a father in some ways, but in other ways, I probably was sort of because I didn't know what to expect. I probably didn't think too much about it. And when I was writing songs at that time, I had this weird theory that I think I, I don't really have as much anymore, but it seemed so important at that time. I thought that every line of every song should be, could, you should write every line in every song so that it could be interpreted in two really distinct different ways. And so I was into this kind of mode of like um, just trying to go for double meanings and kind of, pun is the wrong word because it wasn't jokes, but no, it was like of sort of something would be a metaphor for something and you'd think you'd understand what the metaphor was, but actually there was another, another metaphor under, underlying that. So when I was writing Closing Time, I thought I was writing this song to end the sets, and I thought I was writing a song about bar time, and then about halfway through the song, I realized that I was playing this joke on myself that it was about a child being born and getting bounced from the womb. And at that point, I realized that every single line up to that point was a double meaning. 
it all kind of, you know, it's, it, for me, like it's probably for everybody, like it starts out as a hazy cloud of ideas and slowly comes into focus. And then later you tell the story as though it was like A, B, C, D, E, but it, it's more like alphabet soup. And then it slowly turns into A, B, C, D, E. Sure. How soon after you wrote it to when it became a How long did it take for it to become a hit? I wrote it in uh, winter of 96. Where were you? Or 97. You know, the, uh, I was living in uh, South Minneapolis. Um, I wrote it on a couch in 20 minutes. And it's freezing. It was freezing. It was super cold. Yeah. Every morning of the week, uh, I would go meet John Munson and Jake Slichter in John's basement, and we would demo my new songs. And I was writing at a really, really fast pace, so that almost every day I had a new song. And this was slightly... I don't know if you've had this experience in bands, and I say this from my other friend's uh, observation, that if you're the songwriter in a band and you bring a great new song to the band, everyone is mad at you. Like, there's a strange resentment. Why? Like, the better it is, the more they're going to have to change their ways. You know, like, if you write a really great song, then they have to play a new song in the set, and they, we have to practice it and make it great. And now it might change the identity of the band in everyone's mind, or it might, things might, I don't know, it, it, it upsets the apple cart every time. And so. Yeah, I think it broke up a band or two of mine. I know that feeling. Like, for you sure. bring a new song, and everyone's, yeah. it, it takes on this epic importance. Anyway, yeah. when, I, when I was bringing songs to that basement, I was bringing them so fast also we were all kind of disoriented. And so that song was on the same day as like two other songs and it was just a blur. And, and I didn't really think too much about it and then we, you know, I sent it around to a couple of friends and they said, you got to write more stuff like this. Yeah, but then it keeps going. I mean, like, how does it go from that to like being, it's still, that's not even the beginning of the story. So, you know? okay, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gentle... My theory at the time was the double meaning thing was for me, I would have a band that would be loud, like a rock band, but secretly it would be Simon and Garfunkel or oh. Paul Simon. Like it would be really loud and that would disguise the fact that my real inclinations are gentle and zen-like and When you heard your voice loving. on the radio, what did that feel like the first time? I wanted to go back and re-edit the track. Really? Yeah. Do you still want to? Oh, yeah. Why? What would you change? The mistakes. The bad things. What are the bad things? I'm not going to tell you. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> what are your, um, did your parents and did your brother, did your family get it? I wish I could say that it was like, I, you know, I heard myself on the radio and it was like the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. But my perfectionist compulsive side was just like, ah, oh, shoot, you know. What were you aiming Forgot for? Forgot that thing. Like, what is, what's the goal if it's not that moment? Oh, the process is the, is the goal. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, okay, I'll tell you more about closing time. We, I, I taught it to my band, and they thought it was a soft, gentle acoustic number, and they, they weren't too mad at it. They were appreciative. <laughs> and then when we started rehearsing for Feeling Strangely Fine, I, I said, okay, here's how it's going to sound, and I played it on the electric guitar really loud. And everybody went, oh, and then it kind of came together at that point. And John made up that piano part that holds it all together. And we went through the recording process, and um, we did it in Minneapolis, uh, in downtown Minneapolis, at this great studio that had all this vintage gear that would now be a treasure trove. And uh, uh, when the record was done, I was talking to our producer, Nick Launay, who was really into the smart side of my band and me. And uh, he said, what do you reckon the single is? And I said, I think it's closing time. And he said, no, 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 no. That's, that's, that song is for the punters, like normal people, like bar goers. And, I, and I, inside I went, yeah, that's who I want to write songs for. Like, I don't need to write songs for a small group of people who get my jokes. So that was my first inkling, in fact, him like a, almost like a contrarian indication that it was going to become something. It did. Yeah. Um, so you, w- you get Grammy nominations. You probably go to the Grammys. Mm-hmm. Things got weird because, you know, I imagine that there's sort of like this, you know, between 1999, you know, you end up with a Grammy nomination and then your daughter's born, right? Yeah. And I imagine that that flips everything for you. Yeah. Because you have to, you know, there was, there's this TED Talk, I forget the, the woman's name, who writes Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah. And she talks Elizabeth about... Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah, Elizabeth Gilbert. And she talks about following up Eat, Pray, Love. Mm. Oh, right. How brutal yeah. of a task it is yeah. to try to beat your statistical... Anon- anomaly, you yeah, know? yeah, like get struck by a bigger bolt of lightning. Yeah, um, were you feeling that? Pressure? Oh God, totally. I was. Also, it was a little bit strange because um, the the kid that was part of the inspiration for closing time, uh, she was born several months early and spent the entire year following that in the hospital, much of it in intensive care. And uh, she came home with a trach and a vent and a nurse. And, um, and then I went out to go on tour, literally at the same time. And uh, it, her illness lasted for several years. She's a lot better now, but um, it became pretty obvious that it was not sustainable for me to do what I had been doing. And uh, it was a super stressful uh, experience and it was, it was sleep depriving and a lot of other things. And meanwhile, I was trying to ri- write songs. To Did you find yourself writing songs about that? I tried. Uh, yeah, I think I, I did. I, I, tr- I wrote a bunch actually. Is that the era of where you start collaborating with other people? Because ma- yeah. it gets hard. I think a lot of writers, they write 
maybe they knock that first one out of the park, they get that 100%er, they, they write the whole album alone, yeah. and they spend five years building that first opus, and then they're trying to like recreate that magic in, 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 for a second album within months. And it's brutal. Like I imagine yeah. that some of the pressure must have lifted once you started collaborating outside of your family, outside of the band, and all well, that. It's not quite like that because I, I didn't really understand. I, I, I'll, I'll say my, my first proper co-write was, um, aside from being in bands with people, was with Bic Runga, who's an artist from New Zealand who's tremendous, and we wrote a great song, and it went straight into a movie, and it all seemed very easy. And... Uh, then the second proper co-write that I did was with Carol King. What? What? I know. It was just by crazy happenstance. How does that? How do you happen to co-write with Carol King? So here's my version of it. Um, closing time uh, was at its peak. Uh, I don't want to be slanderous in any way, but my manager Jim was talking to one of my publishers, John, um, about a, a business matter that was unsatisfactory. And I like to say that he was advocating at a high volume at the time. <laughs> and my publisher, John, uh, said, oh, Jim, Jim, wait, can I put you on hold for just a second? I'll be right back. I have another call. And then John came, the publisher, John, came back on the line and, and said, um, do you think Dan would like to write a song with Carol King? And my manager Jim had to stop advocating about the other thing and Loudly. and say, yeah, he would, he totally would. And that's incredible. And we got together. Um, I didn't really know what we were doing. We were just writing a song. We ended up doing a song that ended up on Semisonic's third record. When did that one come out? That's that's like uh, two thousand one. Two thousand one. Right? Yep. Um, did you tour that album? Yep. So when you were back from that, I guess that's when Kenny, your publisher, mm-hmm. moves over to Chrysalis. Mm-hmm. So you end up moving with him. Yep. And that must have brought sort of a, a whole new like enthusiasm because I think whenever you build a new team, you that's know. That's interesting. I, yeah, I think that's very true. And then uh, very shortly after that, you write you know the most controversial song in you know I think as far as countries concerned in, since two thousand. I mean. I know we talked about it, and we talked about it in our closing episode last season, but you know, you write something controversial and you're pushing the artist to do that because you want them to be vulnerable because people react to that. Right. And they're so scared to do it, and then the second day of co-writing, you really get them to say what you want them to say and what everyone wants to hear them say. What any fan would want them to say. Totally. Yeah. And um, But they also didn't... In all fairness, the chicks did not want to send any conciliatory sweetheart type of I love you message to the people that had screwed them. Totally. They were very dead set against any kind of like, oh, we're so sorry, we were bad. You know, they were, they wanted to, if they were going to talk about it, they would have to be mad about it. Did that affect your brand in Nashville? Yeah, I'd say negatively. Except for the kinds of, I mean, I imagine, right, obviously you end up writing with, you played two number one songs tonight by other country stars. So it's not like, you know, I don't know if, if it, why yes. do you say it, it affected it negatively? Well, time passed and everyone forgot. Mm. That's I, interesting I, considering the lyric of the song. 
Yeah. You know, that time passed and eventually those people... Everyone was ready to make they nice. They were ready to make nice. Oh, the, everyone yeah. was ready to make nice way before the chicks were, yeah. I, I, had been, um, I had been going down to Nashville from Minneapolis from maybe 2000, mm-hmm. every six months or so. Maybe once a year, some years, but really I tried to regularly go because I had the sense that it was the one place in the world where being a songwriter was like a was like a lore-filled craft. You know, you could you could train up to become a wizard yeah. nowhere else. You know, and you could like go to Nashville and and they and and it was sort of like the early days of digital recording where analog engineers would never tell you how they got a sound. Like they would never tell they would that you'd say, How do you get that like bass to sound that great and the analog engineers would say I just do that thing that I do you know right. I just, and the digital engineers would say well you plug this into there and you put that into there and then I use this plug in and here I'll, I'll send you a you know, screenshot of it like, it's, same with in Nashville like, if you come there with some kind of promise people will just show you like, how they do it so I went down there again and again and again then I wrote with the, with the chicks and I still got invited back and I still went back but I had lots of political arguments at that point every time I went. You were writing, um, so you wrote that song in Nashville, the Not Ready to Make Nice. I right? wrote with the Dixie Chicks in, uh, in LA, here. So you said that earlier, yeah. and I just want to clarify that because yeah. I thought that was really interesting that um, you, know, you wrote that and the Chris Stapleton yeah. song in Los Angeles. Yeah. I know that the only two country songs that I, I've done that have mattered were both written in Los Angeles. And there's, just, there's something about every time I go to Nashville, I feel good about myself and I get no cuts. I don't know why that is. Why is it? Is, is there something special when well, a country artist comes here? Well, because they're looking for some part of something that people do here that they can mm-hmm. use. The, the, the thing I learned early going down to Nashville is you can't go down as a dude from Minneapolis. Like, not that I ever did this, but I might have had the inclination to go down there and try to write a country song with a country songwriter. Uh. But um, they, they got that. They are fine. You know, they don't actually need someone from Minneapolis to come and pretend to write a country song. They want to just do, have you do what you do well. And so a so, uh, country artist coming to L.A., they're coming here because they know what they're looking for and they're going to get it when they're here. Yeah. I mean, you, it, it's just interesting because that, that song becomes, that wins the Grammy for Song of the Year. Clap, clap, clap. That was insane. Is, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. Having been part of the the Grammy committee, I see how difficult it is to get that nomination. And when people say that that's an honor, um, they mean that. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of songs are submitted by the best artists and writers in the world. And for you to even be considered to get a nomination is an honor. Mm -hmm. And then this is your second, you know, you had won a nomination or you got, you could say you won a nomination earlier with your own project, then you win songwriter or song of the year for yep. Dixie Chicks. Hats off to you, Dan. Thank you. I'm impressed. Yeah. Um, you do a solo album with the great Rick Rubin, and although we can continue talking about that, I know we're short on time, so we're going to jump to. Adele, someone like you. Uh, heard of it? Sounds familiar. Yeah. 
It starts off with a 12 measure verse. That's crazy. The chorus yeah. is in it, the the pre-chorus really could stand as a chorus in itself, and then the chorus is an A A B C chorus, which is pretty nuts. <laughs> it's uh, the arrangement is very unusual for it to be that hooky and for it not to be a double chorus. When you are writing these kinds of compositions, I know we have these debates. You, it, when we write. Um, we usually meet before we write just to get the hour conversation done before the <laughs> session starts because geeking out about composition is super fun. There's with, a lot to talk about. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, are you aware of it when you were writing that or that some of those things are kind of unusual? I mean, no, most people don't start a song, you try, you know, the don't bore us, get to the chorus kind right. of things. Right. And then you're doing not a. F- like a long verse, it's a verse and a half in a way with a twelve measure verse, and yeah. not to get too, you know, too much into that. But it's a very strange arrangement. You know, are are you thinking about pushing that envelope, or is that just a byproduct of what happened? <sighs> well, uh, boy, I bet I bet that neither Adele nor I gave it a minute's thought like a second's thought. I don't think we even thought about that, any of that. Like, I am aware, it's like I said about alphabet soup, like you, you later you can say, well, we just sang the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, but it was sure. just like a, you know, like a jumble. And uh, I only really notice things like symmetry or asymmetry if it's bothering me. Like, I don't notice it if I love it. I only notice it if, if it annoys me. I know, I know that's a very no, like, no, that's self-referential great. answer. Like, but I, I like I like how you know the real story about that song has nothing to do with composition. It has to do with the recording of that song and the song that made the 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 version of the recording that made the album. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, do you mean just how we actually did the record? Well, I guess I'm trying to get you to tell the story about how um, she wanted to maybe go back and record certain parts over, you know, there's and a, that a, there's the, other people who tried to produce it out. And when it comes a, down to it, that everyone had real demoitis, give yeah. or take. I mean, when when I make a demo, if even if it sounds like a like a if even if I know that it sounds like a demo, like literally just has a guitar and a voice or you know super simple i like try to try to figure out if there's a way to like indicate the orchestration just by the way the piano or the guitar moves like oh this will be the place where they you know will like have the strings play this melody even though it's just a guitar or um you know the piano will sort of be indicating what a band might do it's it's like abstract and uh, at the same time, I'm trying to make the vocal amazing. So what Adele and I ended up with was um, on the first day, we had like the first verse was finished. The first chorus was was mostly done. The second verse was like a half of a verse. And then this really weird second half of a verse. It was actually a lot more sym- symmetrical than, than you're describing than the final outcome. You know, it was the, the, the first day was like unfinished but more symmetrical. And on the second day, um, one of us, I think maybe me, suggested that we take the second half of the second verse and turn it into a bridge. We kind of jumped, kind of like chopped it up into pieces. And then we did have a couple of like, uh, a couple of little differences. Um, 
in the chorus when it goes, don't forget me, Abby. Um, that was something I suggested to her. And she thought it sounded painful. And I said, yeah, it does. It just sounds painful. And she said, well, I, I don't like it. I said, well, it's just a demo. So, okay, we recorded it with those high notes in the middle. The, what you called A-A-B-C, that was yeah. the B, I guess. Sure, then, yeah. then they went and did a bunch of, a couple of different versions anyway with soul band and big orchestra and different tries at it. And then in a kind of a flaming hurry near the end, she decided she liked the demo better than the big, the big versions. And so live, she doesn't sing those high notes. And you guys probably don't remember, but I kind of don't either because they're really high. It's too yeah, painful. It's crazy. <laughs> it's too much. Yeah. But on the record, I just feel like it sounds so vulnerable. And so like, it's like you finally, the person is just completely falling apart at that point when the notes get so high. Yeah, and you get overtones in how she sings. Yeah, like, well, she's, she's I mean, a whale. Plus, she's the best. So. And it's good. You can, only, you, you can record it once and then you capture it and then fly it around and you got yourself... You know, she doesn't have to fly no, it around. She did it every but time. I mean, like, you can, like, you really only need to capture each part once. You don't have to capture it. See, I don't understand that. I don't do it that way at all. I like, I, I feel like I always make people do like the second chorus different than. Or I'm just saying that for the, the rest same. of the song, she could perform it for the rest of her life and never hit that note again. Oh, I see. It doesn't matter. You just need to capture it that day. Yeah, I don't you feel know? sad if I see her, see her sing without totally. that note. Yeah. I like the under the radar while that song's getting huge. You're about to, you know, this this album is changing all the rules. Like there hadn't been a, a diamond album in a long time. There hadn't been a two times diamond album. That's more than twenty million albums sold when no one's buying albums. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know where this is headed. And then all of a sudden, you Wait, have. I knew what, the, what. Wait a minute. I knew where this was headed. Didn't you know that that's, that album was selling? It was number one forever. It was really annoying if you had any other songs out there. <laughs> any other songwriter was very angry with you and your co-writers. <laughs> very impressed, but heavy, heavily envious. Um, and then Under the Radar, you're writing a song in country that comes out, the Dirks Bentley Home, that gets nominated for CMA and ACM Song of the Year. And it's like it's almost like an afterthought in a year where you have... You know, someone like you. Adele made everybody else feel like an afterthought. Any other, any other thing that two years on any other two years would that you know could have been like a huge, amazing victory. But Adele was just like so much huger than everything. So we've talked about this before, where an artist can only submit one song for Song of the Year for a Grammy. So it's amazing how many people must come up to you and say that someone like you is a, the Grammy-winning song. Not only personally do I think you earned that, but it wasn't because it, she had a different song that won in that year of many songs. But I kind of love that everybody talks about that song and puts it in the ca- that same category. Yeah, Because to me, it, it is that song. So yeah, it didn't win... Song it won like it won album. pop vocal or something. Oh, it did yeah, it got oh, a cool. Grammy, but it didn't win song and uh, because Rolling in the Deep did right. And uh, a friend of mine said, you know, congratulations on winning Song of the Year for someone like you. And I said, actually, I didn't. It it was won by Rolling in the Deep. And my friend said, yeah, but you won the Moral Grammy. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> 
That's my whole career. That's how many Grammys I have. I've got a lot of moral Grammys. Um, a whole shelf full yeah. of moral Grammys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, a couple of Taylor Swift songs, Pink, you know, there's blah, 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 a couple solo albums, and then uh, Recovered. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. Oh. I think that's sort of the future. I think people are starting to look at songwriters and giving some songwriters credit, but they give songwriters credit if songwriters are willing to uh, go get it. Yeah, I you know? that's right. I think there's, it's really hard to define what we do for a living because that changed you know, after people stopped writing it in notation and selling sheet music. Yes. You know, our jobs include producing and, and selling and touring and performing and singing and arranging and p- vocal producing, the yep. whole thing. Yep. So um, I'm proud of you for doing that, man. This is a big step. I'm, I know that that's a, uh, there must have been a bit of you that felt like this was a big risk. Well, I've, I mean, t- one of my ideals, when I was a kid, I looked at the James Taylor record that had You Got a Friend on it, and it said that it was written by Carole King or C. King yeah. or something like that. And, and I was very struck by that idea that people, one person could write a song and the other person could, could perform the song. And then um, when I was in my early 20s, I saw an Elvis Costello concert where he recast all of his sort of punky, new wavy songs as, um, as soul review songs with a horn section. And they just sounded like Sam and Dave and Memphis. Like every single Elvis Costello song was rethought to sound like this Memphis horn-soaked kind of soul music. And it was great. And at first I was resistant, but as the night went on, I was like, oh my God, wait, songs can be performed and interpreted in completely different ways. You know, this is like, it really kind of uh, blew my mind. And uh, uh, so when I set out to do Recovered, I felt like it had to be kind of a new take on those songs just to give me a shot at singing like it's not fun to sing after Chris Stapleton in the round at the at the Bluebird in Nashville, you know. And it's daunting to sing a song that Adele has sung in the past. So I had to find some way to like recontextualize it so I could just be me and not try to be them. I like when you talk about interpreting. When I, when um, when I first heard the Chris Stapleton song and um, when the stars come out, I thought the reason why you repeated it. And the Swedes, who are the big pop writers, they tend to not repeat things. They don't really, contrary to popular belief, they don't really repeat a lot of things. Wait, say that again. Tell me more. Swedes. Right. They don't like repeating things. In their songs. They'll repeat melodies, but they try try Uh to find ways to do it so that way if you repeat a phrase, it has a purpose. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I always interpreted that, that the stars were both the physical ones and then the people in L.A. coming out who are trying to be famous. Yes, it's a double meaning. So you sing it twice, it can be one and then the other. So I thought that that was intentional. So talk about like, and maybe it did, maybe it was. Maybe it was intentional, yes? No? No. Um, (laughs) I'm giving you credit for it. Okay, so we're going to do the next segment where I'm going to list five people and you're going to tell me the first thing that comes off the top of your head. Oh, my God, okay. 
Adele. Laughing. Uh, Natalie Maines. Laughing. Kenny McPherson, who is your publisher, who's been there since the beginning, who introduced you tonight. He's in the room, so I can't, but wine. With an H? No. <laughs> Where's Kenny? That's a shout out to you, bro. Dan, stop whining. Um, no, no. W-I-N-E. Uh, semisonic. Literally the first thing I was going to say was fun. Then I thought there must be something better. Then we're back to oh, fun. That was fun. Yeah, fun. Let's go backwards. Let's go trip Shakespeare. Van. Mm. For a guy who's as articulate as you are, you know, I like that you used fun and van and some good three-letter words. <laughs> <laughs> Says the guy who's Shakespeare in that title. It's, it's kind of perfect that trips Shakespeare's one word would be van. Van. I like it. Yeah. Um, what's a message you would have for upcoming writers? Up and coming? Up, coming, coming up writers. Writers uh, who are on their way who are coming forward. Up, who, are, who are ascending the charts. <laughs> no, I don't know. People want to be songwriters. Um, I've got a bunch of things. Can I say like three things? Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to. You can stop me when I'm done. Okay. Stop. Uh, Just kidding. <sighs> um, uh, learn how to finish something. If you are the person who finishes things, you are going to be, it's like being a bass player. You are going to be so useful. There's something, there's a quote that says, geniuses finish things. And I think that that says everything in a sense that we know a ton of talented musicians, a ton of talented songwriters. But it takes somebody who says, I'm going to do Recovered, the album, and then to achieve the goal, to see the thought through. Right. A lot of people are like, I got an idea, I got an idea, and it's brilliant, but they can't see it through. Well, a lot of the drama in people's lives is the things that stop them from doing the awesome thing that we're going to do. And it's, a, it's maybe, a, I associate it with masculinity somehow, like the reasons I didn't get to be the best version of myself is blah, blah, blah. But there's a flip side of it, which is like, yeah, if you just habitually learn how to finish things, then that won't be your story. Okay, I, Ross, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the three rules I had um, with, when I started Semisonic. I, I, I got the guys together. I got John and Jake together and the, like, basically pitched them on the idea of we're going to be a band and we're all going to like pitch in together and we're going to like uh, make... I guess hit songs, but by our own lights. And I told him, here's, here's what I would like to be our, our, well, it was our four rules, really. One was uh, we're going to split all the proceeds equally, but I get the last word. That was really helpful. Two was um, life is more important than music. Uh, three was if we're having a bad time, we have to stop and go get a drink at the Loring Bar. And four was, if a song isn't sounding good, we're going to throw it away and I'm going to write a new one. I just didn't want to slave over something anymore, like trying to make something sound better. Because what I found was, if you write a great song, it just sounds good right away. So you might as well just like till it under and write a new song. I feel like you're good at that in sessions now. Hmm. That if we're in a room with an artist or it's just the two of us, that it'd be like, well, let's, let's start another idea, you know? Mm-hmm. It's hard to do that because no one wants to admit when they're 
like going down this path or they want to see it through, see if there's some something brilliant in it. But yeah, you know, you're right. There's something that happens. That spark is you're looking for that spark to make you go back the next day and finish someone like I, you. I mean, it goes it it goes against the whole thing about learning how to finish. If I'm saying like there's at some point, if it's just if it doesn't, I mean. Finish it. No, it's learning what to finish too. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, I, I mean, because otherwise you're finished. You know, you can't. If I if every song I finish, I I see it all the way through. Try to pitch them all, get them all cut. It's just not going to no work time that way. In life, there's it's, no time. There's no time, and it's also not realistic. Right. You know, part of that is taste. Also, I actually want and like I'm serious, <laughs> but I know this is silly, but I want everybody to like every single thing that I ever do. Actually, I have a hard time like at first. I mean, later I can say, oh, that was crap. I'm so sorry that I tried to make everybody like that thing that I did that was bad. But at the time, I have a hard time detaching in that way. It's your love language. What? Which one do I have? I think your love language must be words of affirmation. Dude, I think so. You know? Yeah. So speaking of words of affirmation, um, to close, I, I wanted to say that like before I met you and before you tweeted at me, I had a to friend. To say that you were awesome. What? Yeah. To say that you were awesome. It's crazy, man. But I had a friend that was working with Josh Groban, a girl named Esther Samlo, who still works with Josh. And Esther was my, uh, she used to wake me up to make sure I get to class on time in college. So we've been friends since. Uh, you know, Casey Robinson is a producer, is now one of your publishers. Mm. He also went to college. We all know each other from for 20 years. And um, anyway, Esther was working with Josh, and that's you had worked with Josh. And I remember her saying, um, asking if I knew who you were. And I was like, I mean, I know of him, but, you know, no offense. And <clears throat> she said, he's the smartest person I've ever met. And she went out of her way to say, I I talked to him for a while and he's the smartest person I've ever met. <laughs> and I was so intrigued by that. And I think that there's this envy and pride in a fellow writer who can write in so many different genres and not just write in different genres, but write the very best song at that time in an era for the right genre at the right time. Mm the right concept, the right melody. And it takes patience, and it takes work, and it takes self-awareness. And you represent the songwriting community so well because you lead by example by being nice and being fair and being a positive asset in every session. Wow. So the day you tweeted me made me exceptionally happy and... Uh, I hope that we write together for a long time. But Me too. One way or the other, I'm proud of you and thank you for doing this. Wow. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White.
On the next episode, we sit down with David Israelite, the head of NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association, who represents all of you songwriters out there. This will be the most educational podcast, so tune in next week. So when you're talking to a modern songwriter today, that songwriter is basically making money in three different ways. They're making money from that mechanical reproduction, mostly today interactive streaming. They're making money from public performance, which are things like still radio, general licensing to public venues, television. And they're making money from synchronizations of where their music is being married to some type of video. They put the song in a movie or a TV show or a music video or even YouTube. And a typical songwriter today, 75% of their revenue is regulated in one of those first two ways, the mechanical regulated by a World War I era law or the public performance regulated by a World War II era consent decree. And three-fourths of the revenue from a songwriter, the price is set by the federal government. And if you're a songwriter today and you're looking at why aren't you making more money from your songs, the answers tend to go back to those two reasons. What happened in 1909, what happened in 1941, and the fact that those two things still govern the songs that are produced today, which is one of the most incredible things that you've ever heard. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.